Hello, Mountain. Good to see everybody on this cold morning. Glad you're here. Hey, you know what Mountain is? Mountain is a bunch of people who are, in one way or other, trying to have a journey with Christ. And um, most of the time, we're scattered all over the place, on mission, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and schools, and workplaces. Once in a while, we group up then, throughout the week, in smaller gatherings, and homes, and workplaces, and schools. And then we gather together in large groups, three places on the weekend, over at Bel Air. Everybody say, hey, to Bel Air. Hey, Bel Air. And in Edgewood, at the Epicenter, say, hey, to Edgewood. And here at the Mountain Road campus here, hey, y'all. Hey, us. <laughs> And uh, we're just doing our best to love God, love people, and uh, serve the world. And we're having an epic time doing it. You know what we need to do today? Just today, it feels like one of those days. We don't do it every day, but you need to, you need to just, you need to turn around. You don't have to get up. You just need to turn a couple, about two people and just say, you know, smile big, like, like you're a human being, and turn to somebody and say, just pretend, and, and, um, and just say, good morning, and smile real big at them. Go ahead and do that. Please just do that right now. Just say, good morning. Morning. All right, it's enough of that. You know, somebody asked, "Well, my hair, my hair is growing back." Uh, we cut it a month ago for uh, for kids, and someone really gave me a compliment today. They said, "You're doing a good job growing your hair back." And I said, "Thank you very much. I'm working at it." They said, "What's the secret?" It seems like it's growing back really fast, and I. Didn't, I didn't want to tell him, but I mean, I'm, I feel like I need to be honest, you know, I'm being a pastor. No, this is actually the secret right here. This stuff in the shower, just it's amazing. Just uh, so if you need help, some, and some of you clearly do, um, maybe keep that in mind. So, so Joe Flacco, Ray Rice, and Haloti Nada go into a bar to watch the Super Bowl. <laughs> just kidding. Come on. Somebody threw something at me. Who threw that? I'm just kidding you. I'm just kidding you. It's a little joke, you know. Super Bowl's on us, and even if you don't like sports, you can't ignore the Super Bowl, right? Everyone's talking about it. And one of the things everyone's always talking about is what's the secret angle to um, the game? What's the hidden X factor that will determine who's going to win? You know, everyone's trying to crack that code and come up with some kind of secret, uh, you know, and, and, and people, I, I figured it out. If you, you know ahead of time that the team with the most points is definitely going to win. And so it, it sounds kind of simple, but that's how it works. But it's not that simple because then quickly it's like, well, you know, uh, the Broncos, they have the best offense with Peyton Manning, and so they're going to win, but somebody else says, well, no offense wins games, but defense wins championships, and the Seattle Seahawks, they have the best uh, defense, so they're going to win the game. So the Super Bowl between the Broncos and the, and the Seahawks, everyone's trying to find what's the secret sort of uh, angle so we can, can uh, unlock the, you know, the game and figure out who's going to win. Some say that uh, if the Seahawks can run the ball 100 yards or more, they will win because that will keep Peyton off the field enough that they can win. Others say, no, no, if the Broncos can pass to you know, Demarius Thomas six times, they'll win. Um, someone said it's the temperature. It's in New Jersey, and the temperature is going to, if it's 30 degrees or warmer, Peyton will win. But if it's 30 degrees or colder, well, he can't win in the cold. We've got all these things. Everyone's looking for the inside angle. Here's an interesting one. For four years in a row, the team that had their home opener against the Philadelphia Eagles went on to win the Super Bowl. So all we've got to do is figure out who opened against the Eagles, and uh, we know who wins, right? So uh, turns out it was the Ravens. No, that was last year, and you're not in it. So... It's the Chargers, and that doesn't work either. But everyone's, out, everyone's trying to look for this, this angle, you know. And uh, it got me to thinking, as we're thinking about where we're going today uh, in the message, it got me to thinking about the, the kind of secret code and everything. Wouldn't it be great if we had a secret code and we could crack a sort of X factor for um, being really...
really blessed by God. If we could, if we could kind of tap into what's the secret to having God for blessing in my life. You know, a lot of people kind of look at the Bible that way, like it's an answer code. Like if you hold it up to the light a certain way or read it backwards or something, you're going to find some secret hidden X factor that's going to get God to answer all your prayers, God to give you what you want, God to sort of uh, funnel into your life all the things that you think you need. And there's no shortage of people that are willing to kind of tell you that sort of thing. You know, just pray this prayer, send me some money, kneel on this prayer towel, whatever. And uh, it'll, it's the secret X factor to God blessing your life exactly the way you want it to be blessed. And, and, the, and, and the truth is, I don't know anybody whose life story has gone exactly the way they want it to go. I don't know anybody that their life story has gone exactly the way they want it to go. So you're in good company. There's blessing and then there's some other thing. I don't understand God either. I, I mean, sometimes God blesses people that I don't think he should bless because they don't deserve it. Let's be honest with you. But then I realized, wait a second, a lot of times that's me. So actually I'm okay with that now that I think about it. It's kind of a mystery in a way. And it turns out that the best thing we can do is just trust our lives to God. You know, every one of us got this, like, this life journal that's being written. It's telling the story of our life. And there's blank pages out ahead, and we keep saying, what, what would it mean for you to, in a legitimate sense, say, God, I want you to, like if you were going to write the story, I want you to be the primary author of my life. As I choose a school, as I think about relationships, as I make priorities for the way I spend my time, as I react to people around me. What would that look like? That's how God can begin to bless our lives. And as we come to this section of Scripture, we're in chapter 16 of the story, it turns out that there, there's no magic bullet that will sort of make God answer all your prayers and do what, he want, do what you want Him to do. But there are some postures that sort of invite the blessing of God. And the Bible has a lot to say about how we can be in our lives, in our attitudes, in our hearts, in our life, in our practices, so that we can live the kind of life that God can bless and wants to bless and does bless even more than he's blessing when we don't deserve it. So we want to talk a little bit about that, how to live a little bit of the life that God can bless. And there's so much we can learn from the scriptures here. We're at chapter 16, as I said, which, guess what, halfway through. It's like halftime. Okay? Have you ever come into a game at halftime? It's like, oh, I missed it, but then the best part was yet to come. It's going to be that way with the story, too. Uh, we're, we, so if you're just joining us, it's a great time. You're at halftime, grab some chips and pull up a chair. It's going to be great. And uh, some of the best stuff in the story comes next. And uh, get in a group and grab a book, and you don't, you don't want to miss it. One of the kind of tricky things about reading through the Bible, if you ever try to read through the whole thing cover to cover, anybody ever done that? Tried that? Stalled out? One of, the, one of the tricky things is that the Bible, the books of the Bible are organized kind of by categories, all right? So like there's a section of, of history that all kind of goes together, and there's a section of the prophets, and they all kind of are grouped together. And there's a section of like poetry, like psalms, and you know, those kind of things that all go together. What the story does for us is it takes the whole Bible and organizes it chronologically as the events happened in time. And that's a really helpful for us to kind of understand, oh, I get now what happens. So 
what we're going to find today is some passages that in the Bible appear in like the book of 2 Kings, chapter 17 to 21 or so. And also it's over in the Bible in 2 Chronicles, chapter 32 or so. And it's also in the Bible, like in the book of Isaiah, which is over in the prophets. And also in the Psalms, we're going to bring it all together and kind of talk about where we are in the story. Okay, do you appreciate that about the story, how it makes it all kind of, helps us understand the sequence and the flow of how sometimes in the Bible it feels like, well, I've already read that. Okay, so where are we in the story? We're at that part of the story where God's people, um, the children of Israel, they're kind of the way God's going to work this story out. And the nation has become divided like a civil war, north and south. The north we call Israel. The south we call the nation of Judah. Ten tribes in the north, two in the south. And we're looking at this kind of 208-year period of history. Not a long time, really, even about the age of the USA, actually, almost. And in that period of time, in that period of time, there, there are 38 kings that come and go. And the Bible kind of puts an epitaph on each one. And 33 of those 38 kings are basically no good. They don't really care for the things of God. They're supposed to be leading God's people, but they do evil in the eyes of God, and they lead people away from God. Only five out of 38 are people who lead in a way that try to do things God's way. In other words, about one out of eight. Anybody feel like you live and work among about a situation where there's about one out of eight people that give a flip about God? That's about what they had, one out of eight. So this whole period of time is marked by pretty much the people moving away from God who had blessed them, called them, loved them, and said, you know, trust me. And they said, okay, but then they wander and they stray. They put their heart's affections after other gods. They go after these things and attach themselves to things, as we said last week, that overpromise but always underdeliver. And they never seem to learn. So what God does is he sends these nine messengers kind of like watchmen to come. And remember what we call those messengers in the Bible? We call them prophets, nine prophets who come. And they say basically, hey, heads up from God. Um, you know, he loves you a lot, but he's really not happy with where you're going right now because you're headed to a path that's leading nowhere good. And it's going to lead to your own harm and destruction. And, uh, you know, God, God sent me to get your attention. Nine times God sent a messenger like that over a 200-year period, but the people were, it's like they were asleep. Spiritually speaking, and in other ways. Lazy, lulled into a certain life that they thought was good, that they wanted for themselves, writing their own story the way they wanted to. So they ignored the messengers. They closed their ears. They closed their hearts. They didn't respond when God tried to send a messenger their way. In other words, it makes me think, they're just like me and you. They're just like you just like us. Look at look at look what it tells why God warned them. Second Chronicles chapter 36 verse 15. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because why? Because he had compassion on them. He's not trying to be a meanie. He he loves these people, so he's sending a warning. But it says verse 16, they just mocked God's messengers. They despised his word, scoffed at his prophets, and eventually God's anger was aroused. You know, and that that's the way, you know, they, they just said, oh, these prophets are full of it. You know, they're old goody-two-shoes. They don't know what they're talking about. You know, and one translation says, that, you know, they call them idiots. You know, when you kindly tell your child, 
you know, um, hey, look, don't, don't go into the street because there's cars coming by, and the child doesn't grasp the severity of the situation. The kid just thinks it's all a big fun game, starts running into the street. You're like, whoa, whoa, no, I'm serious. No, don't run into the street. And they keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. If you're a parent with any brains at all or you have real compassion on your kid, you're going to eventually pull that kid up and grab that arm and look, get down in their face and talk to them, aren't you? You're, you're going you're gonna to say, you're going to impress on them, listen. And, and this is what's going to happen if you do, you know, no, no time, you know, no, no playtime, you know, or no, no candy, no, uh, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna have time out. Or if in my family, I'm not ashamed to admit it, you know, if that kid runs toward the street one more time, it's like, you know, a little swat on the rump goes a long way. Finally, we're going to get through. We're going to get a little message. This is what God is doing. This is what he's saying. He warned and 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 warned again and again and again, gave them blessing after blessing, gave them second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, sixth chance. And they just stubbornly, stubbornly slept through the whole thing, continued on their path the way they wanted to go. And God says, I've got to do something different here. This isn't working out. Right? So he has enough, and his compassion meets his justice. And what God does is he pulls back some of his protective hand again among the northern kingdom. We whine and complain sometimes, don't we, about how I wish God would do this or he doesn't seem to be doing that. You know what? Let God pull back his protective, invisible hand on you one day and see how you like it. Think about that one. That's what he does with the northern kingdom. He says, okay, knock yourself out, run in the street. And he pulls his hand back. And what's happening is, at that time, there's a huge superpower. The big dogs of the planet are the Assyrians. Everybody say Assyrians. Assyrians were the nasty dudes who were kind of running all over the Napoleons of the day, flexing their muscles and conquering all the different nations all around. They're the superpower. Bible says, and history confirms, they had soldiers 185,000 strong in numbers. Whoa! That's a big, that's a lot of dudes, isn't it? 185,000. Think about that. Think about M&T Stadium where the Ravens play. Not anytime soon, but think about it for a second. Show a picture of, of, of that stadium. Now imagine it filled with people. Every seat filled. That's about 70,000 people. Now take another one, okay? Another stadium full as well, and another half a stadium. Now make every one of those a big, strong, strapping soldier and give them the latest technology for fighting warfare, and that's what the Assyrian army has. And that's what God steps back and lets roll through the northern kingdom. And they go in and they destroy the capital there in Samaria. And all the people are deported and carried off and made slaves and sent off into captivity in other places. And it's pretty much the end of the northern kingdom. So if you're the southern kingdom, you're sitting down there watching that. And you hear the boots just north of the border. It gets your attention, right? You're like, whoa. Two and a half football stadiums full of testosterone-filled soldiers with nostrils flaring is enough to get your attention. It's like two little kids, you know, siblings, and mom says, don't do, don't do that, and they do it. Mom says, don't do it, and they do it. Mom says, don't do it. If you do, this is what's going to happen. And they say, oh, you know, and they do it. She says, if you do that again, this is going to happen. And they do it again. And then the older one does it. And then the mom comes and, and delivers the punishment to the older one. And the younger one looks at that and goes, ooh, mom must be serious. That's exactly what happens to the southern kingdom. They see what happens to the north, and they're like, wow. And God sends another messenger to reinforce it. And this messenger's name is the prophet Isaiah. If you flip over to Isaiah chapter 2, that's exactly what's happening in this section. The northern kingdom has just been destroyed, and here's a message for you, southern kingdom. Listen up. You also have abandoned your God. You also, look at verse 6 and following. You know, you, you've forgotten your God, and you've gone after these other gods. It says, you've clasped hands with the wrong people. Verse 7, 
Your land is full, full of silver and gold and, you know, your horses. You've been so blessed by God. He's blessed you so much. And yet, it says, and yet your land is also full of idols. You've just thumbed your nose at God. Sometimes we may be able to pretend like everything's okay, but God can't. Sometimes we may talk ourselves into saying it's no big deal how we're living and what's going on in our life, but God says, I can't just pretend it's no big deal. And so it goes on to say in those verses in Isaiah 2 that God is going to bring down the proud. That's what he did in the north. He brought down the proud. When you lift yourself up, put yourself first, it by necessity puts God down. And God is always going to lift himself up. He's always going to be elevated, and that means that he'll have to bring you down. Pride goes before a fall. God will bring down the proud. And so the best thing we can do is humble ourselves, and then the Bible says he will lift us up. So if you're having some humbling things happen in your life right now that feel hard, maybe it's even God. I don't know, maybe it's God bringing you down now, but listen, that's way better. That's a blessing so that he can be lifted up in your life and you can get back on track rather than waiting till Judgment Day when you don't want to be brought down on that day. Right? So that's what's happening and, I, and, and God warns the southern kingdom by the example of the north and by sending this messenger, Isaiah. So let me ask you a question for you to think very seriously about. How, how do you think God might be trying to get your attention these days? What do you think? How's God trying to get your attention? Is there a message of warning? that God might be wanting to give you, even right now in your life. If he sent Isaiah to your door with a telegram, do you have an idea of what it might say to you? The message for all of us from God is probably some version of this, you know, wake up and listen. Wake up and listen. Look around. Look what's happened to so-and-so and their life. Look what happened when someone else is on the path that you might even find yourself on right now. Wake up and listen. If you want to live a life that God can bless, then we have to be alert to the voice of God. If you want to live a life that God can bless, you've got to be alert to the voice of God. doesn't mean you've got to be perfect. doesn't mean you've got to be a super saint. But it means you can't just repeatedly and willfully ignore and blow off and disobey the voice of God in your life and expect to have a good relationship with God. If you kick God's dog, you're going to have to, have, you have to get back on good terms with him before you can expect there to be blessing flow through your life. And some of us are kicking the dog. And it's time to wake up and listen. There's an esteemed theologian who has actually written something about this. Her name is Katy Perry. There's a song that she wrote. I don't know what she's talking about in the song, but the words are actually pretty, pretty poignant for where a lot of us might be spiritually. The song is called Wide Awake. You know it, a lot of you. I'm wide awake. She talks about how I was in the dark, but not anymore. Now I'm wide awake. And now it's clear to me that everything you see ain't always what it seems. I wish I knew then what I know now. And she talks about how gravity hurts when sometimes you just hit the wall or you fall and you land hard and it's like, wow, gravity hurts. I'm awake now. 
I woke up on the concrete, falling from cloud nine, crashing from the high, not blind anymore. I'm wide awake. I'm wide awake. And I've had those experiences in my life, like an epiphany, where all of a sudden something that was cloudy and muddy yesterday and a month ago is all of a sudden in a certain moment, God makes it really clear what's important, where my life is going, and what I need to do. Do you know what I'm talking about? Will you have a clarity? You know what? Some of you are having that kind of moment right now. And that's a good thing. And you're trying to decide even if you're going to let God in and sort of lead you through. Where you say, I I'm seeing it now. Let yourself have a Katy Perry Isaiah moment right here. Where you can get wide awake and say, you know what, I'm, I'm gonna, I think I better listen to this. Is there an area of your life where God is trying to get your attention, to bring you back on a path toward him? Because the truth is, some of us are on a path that is not really leading to a closer walk with Jesus. And that's, whether it feels like it to you or not, a path of destruction. It's a path that maybe you sense is not healthy. It's, maybe it's even damaging to your health or your friendships or your body or your soul, your heart, your mind. And if you'll act now, not tomorrow, not next month, if you'll act now, then God's grace may yet spare you a whole bunch of pain and heartache. Maybe it's just no accident that you're here. Some of you are like, man, I didn't want to go to church today, and here I am, and maybe it's a good thing. Someone said to me one time, it's like, it's like the whole Snowden thing. It's like God is bugging my phone, and then he tells you know, the preachers what to preach on. It's like that's the way God's word is. It, maybe it's coming to you right now. So maybe for you it's that you, your path to destruction is that you're doing a bunch of good things, but so many good things, you're so busy and your life is so full that you really don't have a vibrant connection to God. Or maybe your marriage is mediocre or drifting and you're settling for that. Or maybe you're not honoring God with your income or your time. He just pours all these blessings into your lap and you're just like hoarding and thinking what I'm going to do with my time and my money. Or maybe your sexual thought life or activity is not honoring to God or someone else or you. Or maybe you, your heart cares too much about what people think and it's sending you in a path that's not helpful to anybody. Or your heart cares too much about material things and that next object or thing is going to set you free. Or you find yourself turning increasingly to drugs or alcohol or chemicals for some kind of relief and part of your steady diet of getting along in life. Or you've got some seeds that are growing up of envy and jealousy or someone that just gets your goat and it's starting to make you really ugly. These are all symptoms. What's God saying to you to get your attention? What's going on? What we need to say is, God, I want to be wide awake to you. I want to be alert to you because I recognize that if I stay on the path I'm on, I won't be closer to you. I'll be further to you. If I'm further from you, that's a road that leads to destruction. So be wide awake. You want to have a life that God blesses? Be alert to the voice of God. The southern kingdom has this opportunity because God wants to use them. And predictably, guess what? The Assyrian army comes knocking. All 185,000 of them, testosterone-filled, nostrils flaring, ready to go. There they are. They're ready to put the next hotel on their monopoly board, and there's the cocky king of Assyria to make everything. It's really amazing passage here. If you, if you, if you read the story, you, you probably were amused or you know, very interested by this. 
But there's an X factor because it looks like, okay, they wiped out the North, now they're going to wipe out the South. There's an X factor, a, a hidden key here, and it centers around a person who has the blessing of God flowing through their life, and his name is Hezekiah. Everybody say Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, and he's one of the good guys. He's one of the five guys since David that kind of tries to just lead people toward God and do things God's ways. He says, we're not going to worship those idols. We're going to try to be faithful to God. We're going to try to follow God. He says to the priest, you've got to clean up your act. He tries to purify his life to get rid of some things, add some things in that are good. But they're scared to death. Assyria comes breathing down their necks, and all the people are totally terrified. And Hezekiah knows the right thing to say. I don't even know if he believes it, but he just says, hold your ground, everybody. God's going to come through. Hold, 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 hold. Don't, don't panic. And inside he might be panicking. I don't know, but he's saying the right words. And he talks to them about how God has been faithful, and he's going to help them. Here's where things start to get kind of interesting. The king of Assyria is this big guy by the name of Sennacherib. Everybody say, Sennacherib. Sennacherib, that's the king of Assyria. It sounds like, smack your ribs. King, smack your ribs. Because that's what he wants to do. He wants to come down and smack the ribs. He's, uh, he's about 700 B.C. This is a world power. His, his daddy was Sargon II. Some of you remember studying him in school. And so he inherits this huge thing in their role. And he's very smart. He's, um, he's a strategist and a great smack talker. What he's going to try to do is avoid the cost of war and any bloodshed. He's going to try to take the southern kingdom without even going to battle, just by intimidation, and try to get them to say uncle without a fight, like a plea bargain. So they'll just say, okay, we'll just agree. Where, what do you want to do with us? You know, handcuff us and take us away. So what he does is he sends a bunch of ambassadors down there. And he sends them down there, and he tells them to speak in Hebrew, the language that all the common people would have understood, instead of Aramaic, like they would have done with the heads of state. And he sends them down there to start barking out a lot of really scary things for all the people to hear. Second Kings, chapter 18, verse 19. This, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, in case you didn't know which great king I'm talking about, says. He says, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have a strategy and military strength, but you're only speaking empty words. On whom are you depending to help you that you would rebel against me? Great question. Who are you depending on? And he goes on in verse 21 and says, you're going to depend on Egypt? They're not a superpower anymore. He says, you think they're an ally of yours? They're just nothing but, a, he calls them a splintered stick. They're not going to help you. Verse 26, some of Hezekiah and his cabinet come and they say, listen, Stop talking this way in front of all the people. Let's go. Can we talk about this privately and uh, step behind closed doors? <laughs> and verse 27, the commander sent down there says, Was it only to your master and you leaders that my master sent me to say these things? As if it didn't affect the others hearing it? Because they, just like you, are going to have to eat their own filth and drink their own urine when we're done with you. <laughs> I don't need to translate the word filth there probably for you. He's talking big-time intimidation smack. Verse 28, the commander stood and called out in Hebrew so everybody could hear, Hear the word of the great king. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He can't deliver you from my hand, and neither can when he says trust in the Lord. Don't believe that either. Surely the Lord will deliver us. The city won't be given into Assyria. Don't you believe it? You know what he reminds me of? He reminds me of, um, again, I, I, another football analogy here, but if you follow football, you know the San Francisco 49ers quarterback is Colin Kaepernick, and he's, he, he has this famous thing he's famous for. Every time he scores a touchdown, 
every time, and he's quick as a cat, got an arm like a cannon, and he scores a lot, and he runs into the end zone. You guys know what he does? Here's a picture of it right here. He, he flexes his big tattooed bicep, and he kisses it. It's, it's not as big as mine, but you get the idea. <laughs> kisses it like that. And it kind of like, ah, yeah, ah. That's what Sennacherib, Smackerib's guy is doing here. He's flexing his, his Assyrian muscles and kissing his biceps, and he's saying all kind of trash talk. It's like, yeah, I'm the man. Don't believe all that garbage about God talk right now. That ain't going to help you. See 185 soldiers? It's all a bunch of religious hype. Kind of like Muhammad Ali, Chuck Norris all in one. Just like, yeah. He goes on and on and on. And then there's something interesting that, that he does here. He starts using some of their religious language against them. Like they've studied, they've done research, they know some of the famous speeches in, in, the, in the Jewish heritage. He comes in, one thing he says, you remember they had all the hope about the promised land? The land flowing with milk and honey? Well, he comes and he takes that and he says, if you just give in to me, I'll take you to a land that's not flowing with milk and honey. I'll take you to a land that's flowing with milk and honey and wine and bread and olives and figs. And he goes on and on and on and on and on. He says, it's going to be way better than any old promised land your little God could come up with. He, he, he does another thing. Verse, chapter 18, verse 32, he says, listen, if you're smart, You'll choose life, and that's me, not your God. Choose life, not death. Well, does that sound familiar to anyone? That phrase is right out of their famous speech when Joshua said to them, choose life, and he meant choose God. It'd be like someone taking a famous line from Martin Luther King's speech, I have a dream, and saying, I have a dream that you're going to die if you don't do what I say. You know, it's like twisting it, and they recognized those words, and it was haunting to them, I'm sure. Hezekiah, he's a pretty smart guy. He just... Tells people, don't say a word. And when he has the floor, verse 7, 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 7, what he says is, first thing out of his mouth is, people, be strong and courageous. Does that sound familiar also? It's out of the same, it's the same time Joshua said, choose life. He said, be strong and courageous. So he's saying, you want to use God talk? I'll use our famous speeches too. Be strong and courageous. Just don't be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and that vast army. I know you're scared, but here's what he says. Here's what you underline in your Bible, people, right here. For there is a greater power with us than there is with him. Hmm. Greater is he that is in you and me than he that is in the world. As we sang, if God is for us, who can be against us? The way he says it in verse 8 is cool. He says, with him, with that guy, with, his, with smack your ribs, is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us fight. He just got an arm of flesh. Okay, okay, he's got 185,000 arms of flesh. Okay, they each have two, so it's a 370,000 arms of flesh, and they all happen to look like Colin Kaepernick flexing with biceps and tattoos. But if you've got the arm of God with you, then you've got all you need. The arm of God. You ever think about the arm of God? It's a great metaphor for the strength of God in your life. Like when Job was all cocky and despairing and lipping off to God one time. God says to Job in chapter 40, verse 9, Job, do you have an arm like God's? I can just see God saying that and then striking a pose. And the Rocky Mountains pop out. It's like, Job, let me see your arm. Shut up, you know. Like, 
The arm of God stands for God's strength. Exodus 6, when the people were freaking out because Israel was the latest superpower that was carrying them and everything. And here's what God says. I will free you from being slaves to them. And guess what? Don't you panic because I'm going to redeem you with an outstretched what? It's an image and a metaphor for the strength of God. So old smack your ribs. He may have big biceps, but the arm, it's only an arm of flesh. And God's got bigger arms. Don't forget where Colin Kaepernick is next Sunday. He's on his couch watching the Super Bowl. Sennacherib, though, he's smart. He's really smart. He, um, he uses a tactic here that sounds exactly like the same tactic the devil used when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. And it's the same exact tactic that this very day the devil will use on you. And what it is, is, is he tells them a lie about what God can't do. Most of our problems in life come from believing what God can't do. Here's what I know. I know for a lot of us, there's an army camped outside our door right now. And it's got us freaked out. And it's big. And it seems like this one has never lost. And we're a little bit gun-shy. The odds seem impossible against us. The truth is, for many of us, sometimes we feel like it's just too difficult even for God. It's too messy for him to clean up. It's gone too far for him to fix. It's too broken for him to put together. It's too ugly for him to make beautiful. It's too bad for him to make good. And the enemy's right there with propaganda to say, yep, you're right, not even God can get you out of this one this time. Not even God can fix your marriage. Not even God can rescue you from that kind of temptation. Not even God can help change your mindset and your feelings about that issue. Not even God can put those pieces back together again. As Kyle Eidelman says, when we believe the lies of the enemy, we start to live a life that is led by fear more than faith. When we look at 185,000 soldiers, some of us got that right outside our door right now with the big old arms. What are you going to do? Who are you going to believe? So look what Hezekiah does. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 32, verse 20. Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, what did they do? Cried out in prayer to heaven about this. <laughs> the high king and the high prophet got down low and they said, God, we need you. We really need you right now. They cried out in a kind of desperation. When you have an army outside your door, that's what you need to do, to humble yourself and, and get on your knees. This is one of those things. If you want the blessing of God in your life, then you've got to be willing to sort of prayerfully go to God and say, Lord, I need you. 
Look at how many other times Hezekiah invited the blessing of God through his life because he didn't just try to fix it. He went to God and said, what are, what are we going to do? 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 14. Hezekiah gets this letter from, from the king of Assyria, and the letter is full of intimidation saying, you are, you are absolutely done. We're going to fry you unless you turn over to us right now. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers, and he read it. Uh-oh, he says. And then the Bible says, then he went... Stop right there. Where did he go? When, when, he got, when he got all this terrible news and this overwhelming thing about the army outside his door, what did he do? Look at the rest of the verse. It tells you where you should turn when you're scared. He received the letter, he read it, and he went up to the temple of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. What he did is he said, God, you've got a big problem you better fix. He went and prayed. He didn't go to his military strategists. He didn't go to his bowling buddies. He didn't ask Uncle Larry. He went to the Lord. Verse 15, Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord, I need you. What do you need to lay out before the Lord? What about the army before you? Have you been trying to solve that you're not going to win against? That only God's arm can help you with. Well, I love the next verse. <laughs> you almost wouldn't notice it, but it's huge. Army at the door, threats, go put the letter in front of God and say, uh-oh, what are we going to do? Verse 21, very next verse. And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the commanders and the officers in the camp of the Assyrian king, and so he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. The end, that's it, game over, no battle, no fight, next page of the story. One angel, that army outside your door too big for God, really? You think? If God is with us, who can be against us? I love this. I don't know that God, God doesn't always do it that way. He doesn't always wipe out your, your problem, your army in one fell swoop. Sometimes he does, a lot of times he doesn't. But I do know this, the promise is for every one of us. Verse 22, the Lord took care of them on every side. The Bible says, if I will trust the Lord, if you will trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, but in all of your ways, in everything you're doing, trust the Lord, acknowledge Him. He will direct your path. He'll take care of you on every side. He will take care of you on every side. And He sent you Jesus Christ in the New Testament period. He sent you the Holy Spirit to come around you and sort of make sure you know it and you feel it. And He'll take care of you on every side too. We can learn so much from Hezekiah. So much from this guy. You want God's blessing to flow through your life and wake up and be alert. You've got to sort of offer yourself in prayer and desperation to God. You know, one more thing is purity. This guy, this guy cared about purity. He had a commitment to it. The very first thing, look at verse 3 of 2 Chronicles 29. In the first month of the first year when he got in there to be the king, you know what he did? He opened the doors of the temple of the Lord. Church was closed. They had barred it up. It was old, decrepit, and cobwebs. But he reopened the doors of the temple so God could get in. He said to the priest, you've got you to clean up your act. We've got to get back on track with God. We've got to get things in order. We've got to purify and cleanse ourselves for God. We're, we're, defi we're defiled in a way that God can't possibly be close to us and bless us. So he got rid of it. He threw out some stuff. He got rid of some stuff. He reopened the door for God. 
And sometimes the doors of our hearts get like that, barred up and closed or, or closed off to God. We've got to reinvite. We've got to reopen the door to God in your life. Is your door wide open, the door of your life in your heart? If it is, it'll be because you did the same thing Hezekiah did. You're going to have to get rid of some stuff. Have God help you with the heavy lifting to get rid of the stuff that's defiling to your life so that God can bless you, so the blessing of God can come through you. Sometimes we want to be blessed by God, but we, we don't want to live in the brokenness or the difficulty of the heavy lifting to get rid of some of the stuff of the temple of our life. But that's what purification is about. And part of the problem is our standard of purification is so low, we kind of measure it by the world's standards. So if we're sort of better than someone else by what we think, we think that's good enough. But if it's offensive to God, it's got to be removed. And he wants our life to be so for him. So what needs to be thrown out of your temple? No one else is going to do that. You know, this isn't some finger-wagging preacher that's going to help. You know, all, all I'm saying is if you want the blessing of God, then allow yourself to to sort of remove the things that are blocking God's blessing from your life. <laughs> you know, a friend of mine sent me an email that had some very disturbing information about the Food and Drug Administration, and I thought it was so disturbing, I better share it with you. It was, um, it was their standard of purity for like things like, for example, apple butter. Listen to this. Anybody eat any apple butter this morning, by the way? Yeah, okay. You'll be glad to know that if the mold count is 12% or more, or if it averages four rodent hairs per 100 grams or more, or if there are five or more whole insects per 100 grams, the FDA is going to say, no, that's, that's too, um, that's impure. We're, we can't put that on the shelves. If it's anything below that, no problem. Happy apple butter eating. Mushrooms, the FDA says don't sell them if there's an average of 20 or more maggots of any size per 15 grams of dried mushrooms. Only 15. So if you have 14, no problem. Mm, mm, I like mushrooms. Hot dogs, you, want to hear about, you don't even want to hear about hot dogs. Here, here, here's the point. The point is we, we, um, we have just come to kind of in, in, accept certain things. And we've got maggots in our hearts and bugs in our heads and and dirt in our minds and our standards are low, we're lower than the FDA. And Ephesians talks about us being washed by the word so that we can set our minds on things above, not on the things that are of the earth, so that we can be called in the upward, the upward, upward call of Christ so he can lift us up. Is there something between you and God that's simply by you just being willing to let it go or remove it? We invite the presence of God. Isaiah, the prophet says, chapter 1, he says, let's settle the matter once and for all, says the Lord. Though you've got all kind of garbage, though your sins are like scarlet, they can be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they can be white as wool. No stain on our life is permanent through the power of God. What a beautiful promise. Purity is possible. And if purity is possible, the blessing of God is possible. And it doesn't happen by us trying to fix ourselves. The good news of the new covenant is this. As, as it says in 1 John 1 1.8, if we claim to be without sin, well, then we're just deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, confessing our sins is simply saying, God, I'm finally wide awake to seeing what you already see. You're not telling God something he doesn't know. You're saying, I see what you see. 
And if we do that, God is faithful. This gracious, compassionate God will forgive us our sins and purify us, purify us from all unrighteousness, just like he did in Hezekiah's day so the blessing of God can flow. So when we take what's dark and bring it into the light, when we open the doors of the temple, Jesus Christ is our defense. Jesus Christ is our righteousness, and he alone can purify us. So we're going to have a time right now where we, we, we just come before God and with that posture and that prayer of humble, humble desperation for God like Hezekiah. And, and you have an opportunity to say in your heart, I want to bring before you my army and let you deal with it. I'm going to bring before you my sin and let you deal with it. So those who are going to help serve communion at all of our campuses, if you'll take your places right now and get ready to serve the bread and the cup, they, they'll help us remember Jesus and his sacrifice for us and how he can purify us from all unrighteousness. And as you're taking your places, getting ready to serve us right now, I, let me just invite you to think about Isaiah one more time. Isaiah talks so much about Jesus, even in the Old Testament. And one time, Isaiah had a vision. It was in the story. He saw God really, really clearly. He says, I, saw, I looked and I, sort of, I saw God for who he really is and all his beauty and holiness. I looked and he was high and lifted up. He was exalted. He was on his lofty throne. His whole robe filled the temple. And there was all these angels flying around saying, God's holy, God's holy, God's holy. You better believe it. You better believe it. And the whole thing, the whole thing was shaking. He says, I saw it. So when you, when you really get a glimpse of who God is, it makes you feel small and unworthy. And oh my goodness, I don't belong here. He says, I'm a, woe is me. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I love among people who have unclean lips. I'm just, this is, I just don't even belong in, in this kind of a presence of a holy God like that. And finally, when we see God for who God is and see ourselves for who we are finally the truth is in us and then we can confess our sins and the beautiful part of that vision is that God sent very graciously one of those angels over to touch his lips with a burning coal it says in verse 7 he touched my lips with it and he said your guilt is taken away and your sins are forgiven I want to invite you to have an Isaiah moment like that right now at communion See God for who he is. See yourself for who you are and say, I need you. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. Confess your sin and bring, bring the blessing of God into your life because Jesus will forgive you and lead you forward. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray for your grace and mercy in our lives. We thank you for Jesus and his grace. We pray as we receive this communion now and we have moments of quiet with you that we'll see you for who you are. See ourselves for who we are. And receive your grace and mercy in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.